Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. I have <clears throat> split Revelation 21 into three parts. Uh, last week, we read of John seeing the city coming down, New Jerusalem coming down, and resting on the earth. This week, John gives us another perspective of that, which I'll talk about here just in a moment. Uh, this week, and then next week, we're going to finish up chapter 21 and do part of chapter 22. But this morning, we're going to be reading verses 9 to 21. And I don't know if you remember, but early on in our study of Revelation, towards the very beginning of it, I proposed to you a way of studying and understanding the visions that John shares with us as his readers in this book. Technically, if you are a person who likes to learn new vocabulary words and, um, and that makes you feel happy, uh, technically this method of study is called recapitulation. How's that for your word this morning? See, you got your offering should be bigger today because you got to learn a big new word, recapitulation. And uh, there's all kinds of really big words like that. Um, there was a word I learned in graduate school that uh, was uh, anti-establishmentarianism. There's establishmentarianism. There's anti-establishmentarianism. Uh, and then there's a third one that I've forgotten. And the third one means the same one that the first one does. But that was, that's what you do in academics. You make up new words that mean the same thing as the original word. But for this morning, our word is recapitulation, which in literature is defined as the act or instance of summarizing and restating a narrative to give a def different emphasis or perspective. How's that? If you want that later, just write me and I'll send it to you because I know you're going to meditate on it for a long time and it's really going to change your life. To make it easier, recapitulation, the illustration that you may remember that I used was being at a baseball game, okay? You're at a baseball game and your seat is behind home plate and a friend sitting up in left field at the very back row on the very edge of the very back row. And another person is in the dugout watching the game. And there's other people scattered around in different places. Somebody might be, if it's a big enough stadium, they might be standing up on the concourse looking through the walkway down to the field. And the ball is hit. The pitcher picks it up, throws it to first base, who throws it to second base, and you've got, or goes to second base and comes back to first base, and you've got a double play. And after the game, you sit down with six or seven different people from different parts of the stadium and say, describe to me the double play. And what you're going to get is similar stories, similar explanations of what they saw, but the Difference, there's going to be difference in the explanations because of where they were and what they saw from their perspective. Recapitulation is really that idea of all these different stories of the same event coming from different perspectives. And so in Revelation, actually, now there are some people who believe Revelation is a timeline, and you know that I've already said 
it's not a timeline, and there's clear places where it's not chronological. But recapitulation in Revelation, you could see it in the, um, the seven bowls that are poured out. You can see it in the seals that are broken. Those are just the same events being told over and over again from different perspectives with different, uh, the, the, technically the outcome is the same, but you'll see different results from those different perspectives. And what we have in front of us today is the most clear example of recapitulation in Revelation. And I think you'll see that here as we read from Revelation 21. If you go back to the very beginning of Revelation, John says, I mean, to the very beginning of chapter 21, he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven had passed away, first earth had passed away, the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, let's read beginning in verse nine together, and we'll read to the end of the chapter, and you'll see that this is just the same thing from a different perspective. Verse nine. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. You see, it's the same event just told from a different perspective. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, this is the thickness of the wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Don't know why he puts that in there. Maybe so that we feel better that we don't measure things any different than angels. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation of the walls were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, and the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacent, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. 
let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Our Bibles begin with some very familiar words. In Genesis chapter 1, Moses writes, how does it start? In the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as the story progresses, as Moses relates to us through the revelation from God, he introduces two individuals who are part of the creation of God, a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. Very good. This is, I know this is a lot of questioning early on Sunday morning, but you're doing, you're doing really well. They were created in God's image and God gave them some very specific commands. A lot of people think erroneously that these commands were given to Adam. But if you read at the end of chapter one of Genesis, you will see that God said to them these things. And he gave them specific commands. They were not suggestions. They were not, you know, I'd really like you to do this. Could you take care of this for me? They were specific commands. Do this, obey me, and do this. And those commands were, one, to be fruitful, which meant to have a lot of children, ultimately not necessarily by them, but continuation of the generations. Multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. They were to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth and have dominion. And what were they to have dominion over? the fishes of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing referring to the animals that moves on the earth. Why were they not given dominion over others in the image of God? They were given dominion over everything except human beings. Why? Because the human beings were under the dominion of God. They were his people, ultimately. God delegated authority to, every, uh, to Adam and Eve over everything except human beings. The purpose of humanity was clearly spoken by God to Adam and Eve. In short, humanity was to fill the earth and to subdue it with the ultimate goal of expanding the garden over the face of the earth so that everywhere on the face of the earth where humanity lived, it would be a place where humans worship God. That was man's purpose. The garden was not Eden itself, it's called the Garden of or the Garden in Eden. Eden was an area of land and their job was to expand the garden and make the entire earth a place where God was worshiped. So later, as we get more revelation in the Bible and the prophets begin to speak, 
you will hear phrases of God being worshiped from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. That God would be worshiped from the sea to the sea, from the river to the sea, from the river to the, to the river. There's these tones, these statements that continually come up in scripture of humankind across the face of the entire earth worshiping God. That was God's intent for humanity. To multiply, to fill the earth, to bring it into subjection, under control, and to make there, therefore a, the earth a place of worship to God. Each generation was to pass on these responsibilities to the next. So Adam and Eve would have children, their children would have children, their children would have children, and it was Adam and Eve's responsibility to pay it, pass it on to Cain and Abel. How devastating must it have been when Cain killed Abel? Not just in the loss of a child, but in the fact that the generation had already turned away from God. And what had Adam and Eve done? They had turned away from God. And so you see in their first generation, their son is already doing what they did. And then they have Seth. But as you read Genesis chapter six, you will see so-and-so begat so-and-so, and they lived so many years, and they raised these children, and then they died. And so-and-so begat so-and-so, and it keeps going on and on, with the statement, and they died. Because God had promised that if they ate of the fruit in that day, they would die. The literal translation is dying, you will die. Adam and Eve and their offspring did multiply and fill the earth. But the generations that followed were followers of the serpent, not worshipers of God, by and large. They did not subdue the earth, but instead became subdued by the world system and exploited the Christian, the creation. They exploited the creation, sinfully worshiping the creation and God's made in their own image. But in the fullness of time, because of the great mercy and love of God, a second Adam appeared. And you say, where are you going with this? What does this have to do with Revelation 21? We're going there. In the fullness of time, by God's mercy and by God's grace in love, a second Adam appeared on this earth. And unlike the first Adam, he completely fulfilled God's purpose for humanity and his own life. This Adam was not in bondage to sin, nor did he worship other gods. This Adam did not exploit the creation, but instead brought flourishing everywhere he went. Wherever he walked, he went as the God-man. 
Where he went, the creation experienced healing. Where he went, people heard the voice of God from the one that Hebrews chapter one tells us was the exact expression of God's image. Why is it significant that Jesus was the exact expression of God's image? Because humanity was created in the image of God and their goal, their purpose was to live and move and fill the earth in the image of God so that the rest of the creation, when they saw humanity, they would see God. They would see in each other what God was like. And so this second Adam who came, wherever he went, people saw God, not simply because he was the God-man, but because he fully represented the image of God. Through faith in his death and burial and resurrection, this second Adam, and who is this second Adam? It's the easiest one today. Who is the second Adam? Jesus. They say, well, is it fair to call him the second Adam? Well, Paul thought it was fair and referred to him that way. So I'm just borrowing Paul's language. Jesus, the second Adam, began a new generation of people. And that new generation of people adopted by his father were tasked with going into all the world, preaching the gospel, making disciples from all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe, to obey all things that Jesus had commanded. You see, Jesus, when somebody comes to know God as Father through faith in Jesus, Jesus begins to restore the purpose of humanity. The purpose of humanity was to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and make the world, the entire face of the earth, a place where God was worshiped. Jesus, in his last few moments with his disciples, stood with them on a mountaintop and said, all authority, all power has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. Jesus recommissioned a group of individuals, male and female, who were his followers, his closest followers, and said to them, make the whole earth a place where God is worshiped. That's your job. And I'm going to empower you to do that. Sadly, in our world today, many Christians have gotten a little bit off the mark on that one. And what they hear is 
All the power and authority is given to me. This is what they hear from that passage. I've been given all the power and authority. Go therefore and dominate. Have dominion through government, through power. And bring everyone into subjection. Whether they want me or not, you make them obey the law. You say, you're making that up. No, I'm not. It has a name. It's called dominion theology. It is the belief that we are here to bring everyone under subjection to God's law through whatever means necessary. But that wasn't what Jesus said. Go and make disciples. Teaching them to observe all the things that I've taught you. And that generation will then reproduce itself in another generation and another generation until the whole earth is filled with worship of God. And as we come back to Revelation 21, we are seeing the complete fulfillment of the command given to the first Adam, but accomplished by the second Adam. A whole earth that is filled with people who worship God. As John stands on this high mountain, his heart is full as he witnesses the beauty and immensity of the new Jerusalem. It's the same city that he talked about in the first eight verses of Revelation 21. But now this angel has taken him up to a great mountain to see the city of God settle on the highest mountain, which is prophesied. That the new city of God would sit on the highest mountain of the earth. This new, pristine, newly recreated earth, without sin, without curse, without death, without disease, without hate, without broken relationships. John is taken to a high mountain to see New Jerusalem come down. By the way, this angel, this angel that we're told about in verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, this is one of the seven angels who pours out judgment on the earth. If you back up in Revelation, John's already met this angel before. He's already had some conversation with this angel before because we are told that this angel took John up on a high mountain to show him the destruction of Babylon, the harlot, the unfaithful one, the one whose generations spread war and hatred and immorality and opposition to God. And now this same angel takes this same John up maybe on a very similar mountain, maybe the same mountain in the new creation, and says, 
Look at the bride of Jesus come down. I showed you the harlot, the unfaithful one. Look at the pure and faithful one. So John describes it for us as the bride of Christ, which leads many to conclude that this city is not real. And they believe that this city is only a symbolic representation of the church glorified. Um, I have friends who believe that. Um, They're my friends. I disagree with them. And the reason I disagree with them is because along with many others who are also friends, to me there seems to be language used in this passage that goes beyond the symbolic, describing a literal, real city, which is the residence of our Trinitarian God. And I would conclude from what's here that this city is not symbolic, but rather that John is seeing the saints of all time, the bride of Christ, coming down to the new earth inside the walls of the new Jerusalem. You say, how could he see these people inside the city? Because this wall is transparent. So he could see right in there. And it's lit from behind them so he could see their silhouettes. You know, I mentioned last week that song, I've Got a Mansion Just Over the Hilltop. How many of you are familiar with that song? Is that just like old people songs or is anybody? It's kind of, sorry folks, I shouldn't have called you old people. Us from an earlier generation, a way, way back earlier generation, remember that song. And the song goes about a person who, uh, they live on the earth, they've got a little shack that they live in, they've got a little silver and a little gold, like they're poor and then Honestly, if any of us had a little silver and a little gold these days, we wouldn't be considered poor because gold coin, an ounce of it is worth just a a bit of money. But this person is reflecting on the fact that they're going to go to heaven someday. And when they get to heaven, they've got a mansion just over the hilltop in heaven that is made of gold and it's silver lined. I laugh at that song now. When I was a kid, I thought it was a really cool song. I laugh at it now because it is the epitome of the American dream just moved to heaven. Heaven is going to be everything you ever wanted in the American dream is the idea of it. And I was thinking just this last week, I was thinking, you know, I don't think I want a mansion that's made of purest gold because in the new earth, it's transparent, you know? What, what are you gonna do in your house? There's like no privacy. You talk about a glass house that's made of purest gold. Everybody's gonna see everything going on. So then I thought, well, it is silver lined. So maybe the silver isn't transparent and it's like wallpaper on the inside of the walls of your gold mansion. I don't know. But that is definitely not going to happen. Sorry, if, if you've been living for that dream, um, that you need to pitch that one and find a new one. But this city, as John describes it, is just beautiful beyond our wild, wildest imaginations. I think John is grasping at straws trying to describe this place for its beauty and its glory. Its walls, he says, are made of clear jasper. Now, a lot of you don't, some of you know this about me, a lot of you don't know this about me, but I am a rock hound. I collect rocks. Been doing it since I was 
probably ninth grade, ninth or tenth grade. When I married Terry, I already had my rock, I had a pretty decent rock collection, and I actually had a ruby, I have a, and I still have it. It's a real small ruby that's in the case in my office, so if you want to break in and steal it, have at it. It's not high quality and it's really tiny, but you can, you can steal that. But if you go into my office, I have a desk, I don't even really use my desk. My desk is a display table. So I have a whole section that's nothing but rocks laid out, and then I have a I have a small bookcase that my grandfather made um, before I was born. It's made of oak from a tree on their land. And on that I have it, all the little sections are covered with uh, what are called agates, because agates are my thing. I love agates and I've got my windowsills are covered with agates. The desktop one are other minerals and crystals. And yesterday, this, it was just like, God, you knew I was gonna talk about this today and you gave me a present yesterday. Alyssa, did mom tell you about what I found? So I was walking up your, your front door yesterday, I was doing work over at her house and she has a rock bed out front and, and if you're ever with me and we're walking past rock beds, you'll notice that I start looking down at the ground because I'm looking for agates in those rock beds. And I've looked, I've dug in her front bed, I've looked in her front bed and yesterday as I was walking by, something sparkly got my eye and it was the biggest diamond you've ever seen in the world. No, actually it wasn't. It was a geode. It was a geode sitting right on top and the front of it was broken off and inside were all these crystals and then one big crystal sitting just inside the break point. This made my day. Terry came home, she'd been out doing something. She came home later and I said, look at this. And I just kept looking at it and I, was I washed it and I was shining a light in there. It's calcite, if you're into rocks at all, it was, it's a calcite geode. And it was all calcite crystals inside there and then one large one, like a bad tooth right in the front of it. I love rocks. So this, this is a passage I love because he just talks about rocks and, and precious stones. But he speaks of jasper walls. Jasper is not transparent. He speaks of this wall being Jasper, or the walls of the city being Jasper, but being transparent. And I thought, no, Jasper is made of a stone, a mineral called calcinity. And calcinity is never transparent. The best it gets is translucent in an agate. But when you call it jasper, you call it jasper, you call calcinity jasper because it's opaque. And when calcinity is translucent, it's an agate. So I'm reading this and it's clear jasper. And you know, I sat back and I said, the new Jerusalem is gonna be a place where God has things that we have never seen before, that we have never experienced before. This is gonna be made, the walls are made of an extremely hard stone that is never opaque, but it occurs in yellows and reds and tans and blues and greens. So is this city going to be an amalgam of all those colors on this outside wall? 
like an agate can have multiple colors? Or is it going to be one solid color? And what color is God going to pick? Is it going to be purple or blue or green? Or will it change colors? I don't know. But that's just the wall. The foundation of this city. And if you've studied the Bible or been taught the Bible about what heaven is going to be like, this isn't heaven, this is the new Jerusalem on the earth. The foundation of this city has 12 layers of precious stones. And by the way, guess how many precious, you ever heard about the high priest's breastplate that he wore? He had a breastplate that was inlaid with 12 stones. And guess what the list of those 12 stones is? Almost exactly the list of the 12 layers of the foundation of the New Jerusalem. I spent, because I like rocks, I spent way more time than I should have looking up all these different rocks and seeing if they correlate, because there's two of them that have different names. But as they're described, they're prob- they, they do line up with two of the stones in the walls. So this foundation includes various shades of green, red, purple, yellow, black, and blue. You've got emeralds, which are dark green. You've got peridot, or peridot, however you want to pronounce it. That's a apple green. You've got all these varying shades of green. You've got varying shades of blue. You've got brilliant reds. You've got purple and you've got black. You've got an opaque layer of black in the midst of it. That's probably Peter. He got the black level. And what I want you to imagine is that you're looking at this city And we're told that from within the city, the glory of God, the brightness of God shines out from the center of the city. And what you're looking at is like one humongous stained glass window. I love stained glass. I've always thought since I've been here that it would be awesome to have a massive stained glass window on that wall. And, and come in here in the afternoon when the sun is over the building and on that side and see that light stream through that stained glass window. I love stained glass. And that's like this city. The whole city looks like massive stained glass. My brother does stained glass stuff. He gets for a window, you know, it's the three by five window. He gets like $10,000 for one of those windows. He does beautiful stuff. He's brought back techniques from the 1700s and the 1800s that aren't used anymore. He does uh, 3D stained glass. So like he'll do uh, a spray of roses coming out of the window in a 3D motif that you don't see anymore. It's just beautiful stuff. And they say, he. He doesn't go to the local art show and sells it. He, he makes these for high-end customers who live in Canada for their houses. He makes these beautiful windows. And in his house, he's got all these 
gorgeous windows that the sun comes in through at different parts of the day. And in a very small way, that's what the New Jerusalem looks like from the outside. It's not concrete walls. It's not block walls. It's not ugly stone walls. It's just brilliant color with brilliant light coming through it. There's 12 gates. On each wall, there are three. Fulfills a prophecy because these are a line north, south, east, west. There's a prophecy that the nations will come from the north and from the south and from the east and from the west and gain entrance into the city of God. So they are the way the redeemed come and go from the city. Each gate is made of an enormous pearl and guarded by an angel. Next week, we'll talk about why they're guarded by an angel. Don't have time for that today. But there are many who suggest the significance of the pearls. Have you ever wondered why God chose a giant pearl for each gate? The significance of the pearl, it's suggested, is found in how they're formed. If you're familiar with pearls and how they're formed, you have a mollusk, maybe a clam or an oyster, or there's other ones that actually do make pearls, but a piece of sand or um, a parasite or something will get into part of their tissues and it's irritating to them, it's painful to them. And they begin to lay down a layer of knacker around it, which is the white substance or gray substance that you see sometimes. And it, and it smooths it. And they keep, the tissues just keep layering and layering and layering and smoothing it as it grows. Until one day you pop open that thing and if you've ever tried to open an oyster or a clam that's of any size, forget it. You aren't gonna pull it open. There's another way you gotta do it because they're so strong. But you reach in there and you find that. But that thing of beauty is formed through something that was an irritant, something that we would say maybe was a trial to that oyster if you wanted to go that far. Through irritation, through discomfort, a thing of beauty and value was produced. And many see in this process how God uses trials to form us into something beautiful and valuable, specifically into the image of Christ. And I would see, and a lot of other people see, echoes of Acts 14, where the disciples were encouraging believers to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. These entryways are pearls and maybe a reminder of God's sustenance, God's gracious work in our lives to create a thing of beauty through difficulty. John then watches as the angel measures the walls of the city, finding it to be a perfect cube of 1,200 stadia. If you have a study Bible or 
notations, you'll find a little number there and you go down and for some reason where they translate so many things into modern English, here they didn't and they left it a stadia so you can find a footnote to find out what a stadia is. I don't know why they do that sometimes. <clears throat> but 1,200 stadia equals just under 1,500 miles. So each wall of the city is almost 1,500 miles long and 1,500 miles in width and 1,500 miles in height. A perfect cube. The majority of writers offer two main ideas suggested by the size and the shape of the city. I'm gonna give you one today and I'll give you the other one next week. First, the 1,500 miles, so a square of 1,500 miles would have correlated to the known world at that time. So as John sees this city and as the angel measures it out, John's first thought in being told those kinds of distances would have been, this thing covers the whole earth. Of course, he's standing on a high hill and he's just seeing part of it. But as he stands there on this high hill and looks at the wall of a city, it goes off in the distance until it disappears from view. And as he stands on this high hill, he looks up as it disappears from view because he can't see the whole thing. But when the angel tells him it measures out to be 1,200 stadia, he would think, huh, that's like from here to, and from here to, and from, you know what? This thing covers the whole world. Why is that significant? Why is the imagery that John sees and hears that big? Let's go all the way back to Genesis 1. And why was man created? Uh, mankind, humanity. Why was humanity created? To make the whole face of the earth a place where God is worshiped. So is the city actually 1,200 stadia? Is it actually almost 1,500 miles? I don't know. But that's the size that John would have correlated with the entire world. This city takes up the entire world. Well, then why do you need gates to go out and come in? Where can you go? I don't know. If we're gonna have bodies like Jesus has bodies, right? Our bodies will be raised to be like his body. I'll still look like this, sorry folks, but you won't think I'm ugly in those days. There will be no beauty contest because everybody's gonna win because this beauty is not judged the same by God. But Jesus, remember how he, uh, yeah, this, this is a, 
really important story. So there's these 12 disciples or 11 disciples because Judas committed suicide. You got these 11 disciples in this upper room. Jesus has died. Peter and John have already run out to the, to the tomb and seen that Jesus isn't in it. And there's rumors that Jesus rose from the dead, but the disciples haven't figured that out totally yet because they're very slow on the uptake with everything. It takes them forever to get in tune. And they're in this room with a locked door to keep Roman people out, any of the officials out because they're scared. And suddenly, somebody's knocking at the door. Who's knocking at the door? That's an old song from the 70s, by the way. What are we going to do? Remember, remember that story? I hope not. Because while they're in that room, scared, doors locked, Jesus appears in the room. Walks through the door or comes down through the roof or just somehow transports like Star Trek to that spot. And we're gonna have bodies like his. So you know what my hope is? I really hope that I can go out of that city and go visit another planet and walk around there. Go up close and personal and look at a star. I don't know, but there are, we're not locked in the city. It's possible to come and go. But the entire face of the earth has now become a place where God is worshiped by his creation. And again, that was accomplished by the second Adam. And next week again, we'll talk a little bit about why it's a cube. It's very important that it's a cube. It's very important that there are angels outside of that cube. And I'll give you a clue. Go and look at the dimensions of the tabernacle and you're gonna find a cube and you're gonna find angels outside of that cube. But there's one more piece of information that I want us to consider for today. Did you notice what's written above the gates? And did you notice what's written on the foundation layers? Each gate has a name of a tribe of Israel and on each layer of the foundation are the names of the apostles of the Lamb. Every gate that you can come into through the city or come through to get into the city has the name of one of Israel's tribes over it. It doesn't say Judah, 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 all the way around with a little lion sitting next to the name. It's got all 12 names of the 12 tribes. And underneath of this city, every one of those layers is inscribed with the name of one of the apostles. And can you imagine being John, the apostle, the last living apostle, standing on a high hill and looking at this city and seeing the list of names, and all of a sudden, John. John. 
and his surname. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way down. What would it have been like for John to see his name? That had to be so cool. But what's the significance of the names of the tribes and the names of the apostles? And for that answer, I would like for us to turn to Ephesians, if you will. Ephesians chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, no, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And then I just get lost from there. Oh, it is Galatians after 1st and 2nd, and then Ephesians, there you go. Halfway through your New Testament, Ephesians chapter two. And I wanna, I'm gonna read out loud, and I want you to follow along, and I'm gonna read verses 11 to 22. Paul is writing this church in Ephesus. Some of you are in the men's Bible study going through this with Scott. Paul writes to this church and says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and we're without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Both the Jew and the Gentile are now one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances Man, that is such a clear, strong statement. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, Jew and Gentile, so making peace, and might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, Jesus, He came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This city, which I believe is a literal city, is representative of something. It is symbolic of something. The walls and the foundations with the names on the top and the names of the bottom send a clear message to everyone. And that is, 
God's people are neither Jew nor Gentile in God's eyes. The Jews who were near to God because God dwelt alongside of them and the Gentiles who were far off from God because they were excluded from the community of the Jews in Christ have been brought together as one people. So for all who trust in Christ, when you walk up to those walls, both the old covenant people and the new covenant people in Christ are welcome. The 12 tribes represent the old covenant. The 12 foundations represent the new covenant built on the message of the prophets, I mean, built on the message of the apostles who preached Christ. And all who trust in Christ are welcome in this city as the people of God. The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, the New Jerusalem is the city of God, it's the city of God's people, and it's where the bride of Christ live. So God has opened the door of salvation to all peoples. Jew and Gentile has made them one. He has brought reconciliation to himself and to each other. What you are witnessing in Israel today What you are witnessing is the hostility between Gentiles and Jews. What you are witnessing in our country today in the protests is the hostility between the Gentiles and the Jews. I don't know of a better time in modern history to be talking about the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles than now because it is so ugly and so front page, how much those Gentile Gazans hate Jews and how much the general public of the Jews hate those Gazans. That is what Christ has reconciled for all who trust in Christ. So that Second place is my nationality. Second place is my human birth. First place in my life is that I am a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. And first place in my life is that I am an adopted child of God. I am not to live my life celebrating the fact that I am a descendant of German-Ukrainians. I am to, to celebrate my life understanding that I was lost and I'm adopted by Jesus, I mean, by the Father through Jesus. I am not to be a person who my first identity is a, is a citizen of the United States. You know what should come to my mind when somebody says, Who are, what country are you a citizen of? God's country. And by the way, that's not America or Russia 
or China or Canada or Mexico. The first thing that should come to my mind is I am a citizen of Jesus' kingdom and he is my king and I will live in ways and think in ways and speak in ways that represent my homeland. I would have closed this morning with two questions. First, is your hope of life in the New Jerusalem founded on faith in the person and work of Jesus? The question that I ask everyone who talks about wanting to be a member of Northbrook Baptist Church, and I sit down with them, I don't say, tell me your testimony of faith. Sometimes I will say, what is your journey, your spiritual journey? But the question that I ask is, if you stood at the gate of God's city or heaven, and you were asked by God, why should I let you into my kingdom? Why should I let you into my city? What would your answer be? I've done a lot of good works. I, I've been a pretty good guy, you know, and, and um, I attend a church pretty regularly, and, um, and I gave my money to poor people and to causes, and uh, so that's why. And God would say, if that's your reasoning, depart from me, I never knew you. And Jesus says there's a group of people who will say at that point in time, but don't you remember I did this in Jesus' name and this in Jesus' name and this in Jesus' name? And he says, I never knew you. Go away. The answer is, the only hope I have of entering your kingdom the only hope of, I have of entering your city and being in your presence is that I am trusting in the blood of Jesus for, for forgiveness of sin by you. And that's all I have. And he'll say, come on in. Enter into the joy of your salvation. If you have done that, I would ask you, second, are you actively participating in the work of the second Adam? I'm not asking if you're trying to make America a better place for people to live. I'm not asking who you're voting for in the next election. I really don't care. I don't think it's gonna make that much of a difference. Say, oh, if we don't get to, this is gonna end. That's been being said every election for since I was a kid. Not much has changed. The work of the second Adam is to be seeking through the spreading of the gospel in your word and deed to make the earth a place where God is worshipped. That's the work of the second Adam. I have said this over and over again. I've made people mad by saying this over and over again. 
And I've just reached the point, I'm 63, and I'm getting a little grumpy and crabby, and so I really don't care that you get mad at me. We're not here to make America great. Oh, you hate Trump. That's not the point. We are here to make God great in other people's eyes. We are here to talk to other people about Jesus and where they accept him and trust in him, their life, that little life that all of us have that appears for a moment and vanishes away, that life for a moment is a piece of ground upon where culture change begins to happen. And it is our job, it is our responsibility, it is our mandate, whether we are successful at it or not, to plant seed of truth, to water seed of truth, and sometimes see that seed spring into life because God gave the increase to make the earth a place where Jesus is worshiped. Our purpose is to partner with the Holy Spirit's work of creating a people from all nations who willingly and with a new heart worship Jesus and his Father. May we, as God's people, pursue that in the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I would confess, and uh, I would imagine others here would too, that too often we place our hope in things that we can do, in things that we are successful at, And we don't even think about what we're doing because it's just the way our culture is. And we, we think that our objective is to live good lives, be kind to bunny rabbits, to smile at our grumpy neighbor, even though we can't stand him. and somehow hang in there until we die to be with you or Jesus comes back to take us to heaven. Father, I just pray that you would continue to work on my thinking and that you would continue to work on our thinking as a people to understand that we're here to make this planet a place where you are worshiped Because out of lives that are desiring Jesus more than anything else, 
We speak words of truth that point others to Jesus that the Holy Spirit will use to transform hearts and make them want Jesus more than anything else. And God, in this election year, when we are so frustrated with the politics and we are so frustrated with the lies that we're told from so many different mouths that want us to vote for them so that they can have their dream, so that they can have the power that they've always lusted for. Father, help us to remember that we are first citizens of your kingdom. And help us to have a love for those around us to encourage them towards that kingdom. And help us to be people who through the power of the Holy Spirit display the image of yourself in our words and our actions. In your son's name, amen.